Welcome to episode two of the Upstate on the Fly podcast, where we talk with Todd Hirano about fishing a dry fly in the winter. Todd, do you want to take us through uh, kind of the beginning of how you got started? Well, um, you know, starting way back when I first started getting into fly fishing for steelhead, which would have been, you know, dating back to the late 80s when I previously lived in Oregon, um, you know, I came across Bill McMillan's book at a fly shop in in Portland or Tigard, actually, which is a suburb of Portland. And um, so I kept going into this store in this Kaufman Streamworn store and this book, Dryline Steelhead, was on the bookshelf. And every time I'd go in, I'd peruse through it and read a little bit here and there. And I, it, it just kind of intrigued me because it kind of the things he talked about went against conventional wisdom, you know, because what what you'd hear back in those days was, you know, you catch steelhead on sink tips in the wintertime or full sinking lines in the wintertime. And this guy was talking about, you know, catching a winter steelhead uh, with a floating line and just using a sparsely dressed fly, the winner's hope, you know, on a, on a heavy hook. So that, that's what really got me interested. And, um, you know, of course the rest of the book got me interested in fishing with dry flies and everything else too. So it's, it, you know, eventually I ended up getting a copy of that book. Um, I moved back to Hawaii shortly after that. I, I'm born and raised in Hawaii, by the way. Um, so that was like 88, 89 when I was in Portland, you know, working as a bum musician at the time. And uh, moved back to Hawaii in 1990. Uh, my wife, you know, bought me that book, you know, through the mail. And I just reread it, you know, read it over and over and over. It just became part of my consciousness consciousness you know i just just poured through that book and and you know everything that bill mcmillan talked about just really sunk into my my gray matter you know and so i i got really inspired both with surface steelhead fishing and being interested in in dry line fishing in the winter time um you know and over the course of time from 1990 basically until 2009, I was a long distance steelheader, you know, taking trips from Hawaii back and forth to Oregon. And um, I took a few trips to BC as well. Um, but it wasn't until I moved back to Oregon full time in 2009, um, you know, that I really made some concentrated efforts on trying to catch a steelhead on a dry line in the wintertime. Um, you know, and early in, early on in my efforts with, with dry line fishing, I mean, I kind of succumbed to, you know, fishing with a sink tip. Um, but then I, I was on this forum uh, called Westfly. It no longer exists anymore, but it was this Oregon fly fishing forum. And um, this guy uh, named Lyle, he, I think he what, his username was like D-Barb. I think he's on spay pages as well sometimes. But he okay. he put out this thread called, you know, taking the dry line challenge, you know, because he, he had heard about, he'd read about dry line fishing too. And I was like, well, you know, since, you know, I really take take to heart, you know, the teachings of Bill McMillan in, in his book, you know, I was like, I, I, I'm going to decide to really embed myself and, and dedicate myself to trying to catch a steelhead with a dry line in the wintertime. And, um, you know, in the course of that time, too, um, I had actually had some communication with Bill McMillan through email. Um, I had first communicated with him in 1995 via letter, 
through Amato Publications. And then um, when I shortly before I returned back to Oregon, um, I was actually going back and forth with email with with Bill. I found his email on one of his scientific papers. And um, so we were just going back and forth. And, you know, what I learned from him is that, you know, and also what I learned through his book is that, you know, the methods that he uses is not about efficiency. It's not about a mindset of you're going to go out and catch as many fish as you possibly can. It, it's it's a mind self, mindset of self-imposed restraint. In other words, you know, you're going into the game with, you know, your hands tied behind your back in the sense that you're going to be leaving money on the table. You're not going to um, dredge up every single steelhead in every piece of water you fish. Um, you know, just by virtue of like with the with the dry line in the wintertime, I mean, your, your fly is just simply not going to be in that zone, that strike zone, you know, as, as high a percentage of the time as somebody who's fishing with a sink tip system. So you go, sure. you go into it, you know, with this mentality, knowing that you're making sacrifices and you're making sacrifices because of the, just the fluid grace of the method and realizing that the smaller successes you're going to have are just going to be, you know, sweeter, you know, it's going to be for me at least more meaningful, um, you know, rather than catching massive numbers of fish, you know, so this would have been back just after I came to live full time in Oregon. I, I came back to Oregon to live in the Springfield area, which is in the Southern Willamette Valley of, of the state of Oregon. Um, you know, so I, I was able to make regular trips, going after winter steelhead. And um, as it turned out, um, my first dry line winter steelhead, which I got was probably in 2010 or something like that. It wasn't even on one of Bill's traditional patterns. Um, back then, you know, because those big heavy hooks that Bill used, the Partridge M series hooks, they were discontinued, you know, for years by that time even. So, you know, the only way that people got a hold of them was, you know, through maybe Atlantic salmon uh, tying supply places or, or folks who had some old stock of those partridge hooks. Um, uh -huh. So Bill himself, you know, had adapted to using alternative patterns for fishing with the dry line. He told me about tying um, like marabou versions of his winner's hope using cotter pins. Um, so basically like a shank fly, you know, where the cotter pin provided the weight. And Sure. Yeah, yeah. So he was doing that. I experimented with doing that for a little while. And then he also mentioned about using like, you know, simple leech patterns. Um, Mark Bachman from the fly fishing shop in Oregon had a leech pattern tied on a long shank hook. I think they were called like Big Red and and something like that. They were just... Uh, cross cut rabbit wound on a long shank hook with a bead in the front. And so he was fishing those he told me about. And so I decided to experiment with tying. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with what a mole leech is. Yeah. Yep. So I started tying, you know, relatively small versions of the mole leech with a quarter inch bead on it. And, you know, to, experiment with and I actually was going back and forth with Bill through email at that time and I said I said hey I'm tying these weird um, leech flies do you want to try some and he so he said yeah sure so I, I sent him some mole leeches that I was tying 
And of course he lives, he, Bill lives right on the Skagit River in uh, Washington. And at that time, I think it was like 2009, 10 into 2012 or 13, maybe he was part of a survey team. So he was able to fish the Skagit after the closure of the river to take scale, scale and tissue samples from, from the native steelhead there just to kind of get a sense of what the steelhead population was. But anyway, he started using those mole leeches as time for him and it became like his favorite fly because it, um, with that hook coming out the back, um, you know, it, it really was effective at hooking and holding on to fish. And because he was doing these scale and tissue samples with these steelhead, um, it was like his most reliable fly to hook and land steelhead with. And, and so in turn, you know, my first dry line successes came with uh, using bead-headed mole leeches. And okay. after having a couple seasons of, you know, kind of finding the, you know, just the mindset, you know, just you just have to have this kind of stubborn persistence going into it. Um, and, and knowing, again, that you're making these sacrifices. So I had some, a few early successes fishing a, uh, 13 and a half foot, eight, nine lead rod, you know, with a CND double taper line, a mono leader and, and those bead headed mole leeches. Um, so I had some successes doing that. And then over the course of time, you know, I, I yearned for wanting to catch steelhead on the pattern that, you know, Bill had developed. So I, I got a hold of some old stock partridge M hooks and tied a bunch of winner's hopes and, and, you know, started getting some steelhead, you know, using the traditional winter's hope pattern as well. I, I actually made a little bit of modification to the original pattern. Um, instead of using the calf tail topping, I ended up using like uh, peacock curls for the topping on the winter's hope. And, okay. Yeah, so I actually made some modifications. I actually sent some to Bill and, and he actually fish some of them and, and um, had some had some hookups on them I think but but so yeah it was kind of just this developing this mindset over time and and and, and just persisting with it and I've, I've as far as tackle you know I've used like my two-handed rods and then there was a period of time uh where I've where I uh, adapted to using you know single hand fiberglass rods I went through a phase where I was buying up vintage Fenwick fly rods, uh, fen glass five fly rods off of eBay. And I was using these eight uh -huh. and a half foot seven weights and eight weights and the nine foot nine weight. And I was using ambush lines. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the wolf ambush line. Yes. Yeah, yep. it's basically a short, heavy, floating, um, aggressive scandy head, you know, with a continuous... Uh, running line attached to it. And so it made it where a lot of times some of the rivers I fish are smaller on a smaller side. So using that integrated ambush, you know, made fishing in tight quarters um, possible. And, and with the mass of those heads, you know, being able to get those, those big heavy flies out. Um, and then also what I did adapted to, I mean, Bill talks about in dry line steelhead about using a double taper line. Uh, of course, when you're using a short shooting headline, um, you can't make like stack mans and back mans and stuff like that to sink the fly. So I adapted by using what's called a, 
a pullback, man. It's, it's kind of like what Dick Hogan talks about in his book, you know, where you cast your line straight across or maybe even slightly upstream and then pull the rear half of the head back upstream. And, and yep. then you can either like, you know, take a few steps down as, as your fly is sinking, uh, maybe even, you know, holding back a few strips of line to feed into the drift and then gaining some depth that way. And then, you know, just kind of keeping as little tension as possible on the head as it comes across the flow. So that's kind of how I adapted to using a shorter, shorter line as well. It really comes down to, if I'm correct, it's it's maintaining that broadside swing of the fly without letting a belly develop so it's coming at the fish. Is that right? Um. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, I you know, and I don't. I yeah. I, I, as much as I can, depending on the water I'm fishing, I try to go for a broadside presentation. Um, but it all depends on the flow, you know, because kind of a broad, even flow, you can get that broadside presentation. But of course, um, in other flows, you know, for example, you got, you're fishing a run, you know, that, uh, the main push of the run moves at a fair pace. And then you have the inner inside seam that you're concentrating on. Um, so a lot of times in that kind of water, you know, I'm casting into that main flow, and, you know, doing my pullback, man, um, you know, taking a few steps down if I'm able to um, as, the, as the fly sinks. And um, so in that circumstance, it's not so much a swing. It is where the fly is facing butt down, downstream for the most part. And it's kind of a rising swing. In other words, you're casting into that main flow. Uh, you do your pullback, man. You know, the fly is sinking down. And as it starts to come under some tension, as it's coming through the heart of the swing, you know, the fly is going to start rising. It's, it's just unavoidable, you know, in, in those kinds, in those sure. kinds of currents. And, and, you know, a lot of times, not a lot of times, but, you know, some of the times I've had successes where, you know, just when the fly is starting to come under tension, in other words, it's at its deepest part of the swing. And then it starts to come under some tension as it starts to come across and it starts to rise. And I, I don't know if that point where the fly starts to rise kind of elicits a, can elicit a strike response. So, and I, yeah, I was just going to, as you were talking about that, I was just going to ask you if you thought that rise is a yeah. trigger because I, I've had enough times now that a fish has grabbed at that point that it seems like it's a little too frequent to be a coincidence. Right. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, had that a few times where it seems like the fish is seeing the fly coming down, kind of dead drifting in a sense, and then it starts to come under tension and starts to move and it starts to rise, and um, I, I think that trigger can trigger a st strike response. And depending on the flows too, you know, there's times where I cast across and slightly upstream, and I don't even mend or anything. I just let the current take take the line and the fly you know, however it will. Um, so some, sometimes a little bit of coming down and across has worked as well. So, so you're really not uh, trying to mend the line too much. You're, you're letting it, you're letting the fly. Yeah. Spin. Yeah. Basically, you know, like in, in flows where I'm doing a, a bit of setup, like what I'm talking about with the pullback men, um, 
you know, yeah, like I cast the fly cross, I, I do the pullback mend, um, you know, depending on the flow, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll have a few strips of lines that I've held back to let, you know, go into the drift to give the fly some depth. But once, once that happens, you know, I'm just letting the fly swing across. I'm not worried about mending after that for the most part. Okay. Because in, in the grease line book, it seems like mending is mentioned so frequently that my first interpretation of it was I, I needed to be moving that line constantly to keep that fly swimming broadside. And uh, it, it ended up just being so many stack mends that I essentially didn't even swim the fly through. You know, it was just a basically a dead drift the entire yeah. way. I mean, if there's um, some if there's some conflicting I, current right near you, you know, sometimes you'll you'll mend up mm -hmm. or down, you know, your running line maybe. Um, but for the most part, you know, once the fly starts swimming, um, you know, I'll just I'll just let it do do its thing because what's important to me is I want to be able to feel the take. Um, sometimes you know you'll just kind of get a kind of get a nudge, nudgy pull at the fly and, and, you know, you won't hook the fish and then you'll know that, you know, to go back with another cast of that fish. Uh, I, I talked with Bruce. Bruce has got his casting angles and I mean, he's casting pretty far and he's casting much more downstream uh, than I think what mm -hmm. I was used to, at least hearing. And the biggest eye opener for him. And I, I had a bunch of people contact me after was he wasn't mending at all. He was, he was doing it all with his casting angle. And uh, that seems to be kind of a common thing when you're, you're talking with people that are pretty experienced fishing this way is I think you can almost make it more complicated. Yeah. Than it has to be. Yeah. Once, once your fly starts swimming, you know, I really don't, I don't mess with it. Um, Cause you gotta, you gotta feel for okay. the take. Um, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, many of the times when I've had grabs on, on bigger flies, like the winner's hope, um, you know, it's kind of unmistakable, you know, the, the fish hits pretty hard, pulls pretty hard. Um, but sometimes on other flies, like the moly, sometimes I've had like kind of these nudgy pulls at the fly. And if you're, you know, frequently messing with your line. Um, you might miss feeling those. Was there a reason that um, when you were tying the mole leeches, was there any design thing that caused you to go that route? Uh, was it, you know, movement or did you think that the rabbit would sink better? Was it, what was the thought process behind that? Um, I think it just came out of communications with Bill, you know, Bill McMillan directly. He talked about, you know, having resorted to leech type flies after he was, ran out of his stock of partridge hooks, basically. He, Bill, you know, he's kind of a pragmatic guy. Um, you know, even his fly okay. designs, I mean, he ties beautiful flies, but um, he's not one that's for, you know, high art and, um, you know, intricate fly tying. I mean, he's, he's kind of a pragmatist. And, you know, so that's why, he, you know, when he ran out of hooks, he went to the cotter pin flies and, and, and using those leech flies. So I just kind of went off of his thoughts, you know, on using those, le those leech flies that he was using on the long shank hook. I got to thinking, well, what about a leech fly that's, you know, tied with a stinger hook? Um, so I was thinking in terms of movement and I was thinking in terms of, 
um, you know, hookup ratio as well. Sure. Did, uh, did fish mortality come into play at all with, you know, with the large hooks or was that never really a consideration or you, you never really had an issue with it? Anyway? Um, I, I haven't had an issue with it anyway. I mean, admittedly, I, I haven't caught like a ridiculous number of steelhead on, on the huge irons because it's not something where you're going to catch a lot of fish anyway. I've just, I've, I've caught a handful of them of steelhead on the, on the big irons. Sure. Um, and I was asking Bill about that too, because he, you know, there'd been some controversy online on some forums, like on spay pages, you know, basically some, if you talk about using these big irons, um, sometimes you'll be accused of being a person who's out to kill fish and stuff. So, but Bill said he had, um, in all the years he's fished large irons, he, he had like one fish that he might've had some concern about uh, with, with a deep hooking, but otherwise generally, you know, his hookups have been in the hinge of the mouth, hinge of the jaw or, in other parts of the mouth where, um, you know, he hasn't been concerned about mortality. And I, I mean, of course, Bill would be a guy, you know, with his, um, his life devoted to conservation. Um, if it was, if it was something that he felt was, you know, hurting the reeds, wild steelhead resources, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't be promoting it. So. I, I believe that, you know, each each person has to fish in the way that they enjoy fishing as long as they're not doing harm to the resource. Um, you know, I feel like I'm pretty conscious about, you know, being an advocate of wild steelhead. But, um, yeah, like I said, I've had things come up where, you know, there's times where I have fished, you know, tri trout class gear for steelhead, um, you know, like trout spades and stuff. And I, I've been called like a person who is immoral and <laughs> you know jeopardizing the, the wild steelhead resource but you know if, if, if you know how to fight a steelhead um you know you still can land them on, on like you you just have to know what you're doing um but you know everybody has to have their own definition of, of what brings them pleasure and and what 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 is success for them um and you know like the mindset I've developed, I mean, I, you know, just because I fish the way that I do, it's not where I feel like, you know, other people need to think the way that I think, um, you know, fishing dry flies all the time. Um, it's not for everybody. I mean, I have a great, I have fun doing it. Um, I don't catch as many fish as most other people, but um, I have fun doing it. And, and same way with fishing a dry line in the wintertime, I'm, I'm not going to catch very many fish. Um, in fact, I've had my buddies um, who are fishing sink tips, you know, and they fish behind me and right, right where I, I fish through, you know, they, they pull fish out of, of spots like that, you know, but it's, yep. yeah, I, I went, I went through that last season myself, you know, when I, I wanted to commit to the dry line and I, I think if you're not doing it for the enjoyment, it does get tough when you see people catch a fish right. where you just fish. It <laughs> can mess with your head, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah I've kind of got, gotten to the point where um, I'm kind of numb to that. I've kind of developed this strange tolerance for not catching fish. And that's, you know what, that's that's kind of where I'm at now as well. 
where I think for the most part, it's not that I don't have confidence in the dry line. It's more that I'm realistic right. in my expectations. Uh, and it's taken probably about a year and a half now to get to that where you're not upset if you don't catch a fish. And I mean, sometimes all those fish wouldn't, right. you wouldn't have right. caught them anyway, you know, in, in, in the type of water. Oh yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I listened to Adrian's, uh, Adrian's podcast on the wet fly swing. And he was saying, he's like, you know, Todd's got this mentality that, you know, he just, he's so encouraging to be around, you know, it's, it's, it's just a completely positive mentality when you're fishing, which there's no way you cannot, you can't enjoy this. Yeah. I mean, if, if all, if the only thing that mattered was catching fish, I mean, I'd be miserable because I go, I, I spend a lot of hours, you know, just being out there and not catching fish, but um, you know, just being out and casting and swinging and, and, and being in the midst of God's creation, you know, is, is always enough for me. Um, and sure. Yeah. You know, you get to a point where it was probably part of being getting older too, where you, you, you don't feel you have anything to prove. Kind of takes the pressure off too, because this sense of competition starts to fade. Um, you know, I'm not worried about, if I have if I have something to report to my buddies, if I have pictures to post on social media, um, you know, I'm I'm less and less concerned about that kind of stuff. So let's uh let's talk about the dry fly in the winter then, uh, because you seem to be pretty dedicated to <laughs> That's that. That's a whole nother insane dimension. <laughs> <laughs> is is there is there like a threshold though where where you know, I mean maybe. So for me at this point, I, I kind of have an idea of when the conditions could be favorable to catch a fish. And if I don't think they're favorable now that I have a newborn, I'm probably not even going to go out. Yeah, and fish I, in the wintertime, I mean, of course, our, our water on, on our side of the continent, you know, it runs a little milder than I imagine where you're at in the wintertime. <laughs> but um if the river is, you know, just really high after a big rain, I mean, I'm not going to bother with fishing a dry fly because you're going to need to get some depth. Um, fish are going to be closer to the bank and, and, and laying deeper in colored water. So, you know, for the most part, I'm fishing a dry fly, you know, when the river's on the drop, um, you know, when conditions are relatively mild. Um and again, you know, it's not a high, of course, it's even less of a probability method than even fishing the dry line with a wet fly. Um, so again, it's it's kind of just taking, you know, a crazy mentality a step further <laughs> towards insanity. I think I started fishing it in late February and there was a lot of people looking at like, why do you, why do you have a dry fly on right now? And I was like, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I want to see what happens. And I think that excitement trumped the catching of a fish, you know, because it, the first time I started doing it, I'm staring at the fly constantly and my heart was beating out of my chest. I, I thought at any point something really cool yeah, was going to happen. Yeah, and that's what it's about. It's, you know, you're holding on for that rare and special encounter. 
So it's not something that's going to happen every time you go out, of course. Um, you know, so my ha my handful of successes with dry flies in the wintertime is even smaller than my handful of successes with the dry line with a wet fly. Um, but, you know, it, again, you know, Bill McMillan in, in dry line steelhead, you know, planted the possibility of success in my brain, you know, because he talks about getting winter steelhead on dry flies in, in dry line steelhead. Um, so yeah, he kind of, he kind of planted, you know, that, that it is within the realm of possibility. So I guess that was enough for me. The first couple winter steel that I got on dry flies were actually in the springtime. One was in February, one was in late March. But um, what what was the most exciting encounter for me was a couple years ago, a couple of December's ago in 2018. Um, you know, I was fishing a river down in southern Oregon that's pretty much noted for hatchery steelhead and parades of gear fishermen in, in their boats. You know, they they do a lot of side drifting um so it's more known as a catch and mm -hmm. catch and keep kind of river where you know you, these guys are looking to catch their limit um but i happened to be fishing this river because my wife was off doing her thing so i was like well my you know since my wife's doing her thing i'll grab her car and and um and fish this river even though it's not known as a even as a decent fly swinging river but it was like in late December a couple of years ago, and um, I had this steelhead in 44 degree water just come broadside over the surface to to grab my fly, and that's when I had just bought that this trout spay as well, like 11 foot three weight Cabela's rod, <laughs> a vector rod. Um, yeah, yeah. So I decided oh, really? I was going to chase winter steelhead with an 11 foot three weight, and catching some <laughs> grief about it on on fly fishing forums um but i mean you know this fish just came as aggressive as a summer steelhead you know just just launched broadside across the surface and ate the fly and it was a fairly fresh fish and i i, I had her in you know within five to seven minutes i mean you, you just fight fish with the lower part of the rod and um lock down on your reel and just you know yeah. don't give them any any um slack you just you just fight them real aggressively and i had that steelhead on the beach just as quickly as i would otherwise is there is there a specific color uh, in your favor? you know it it all depends i when when i'm fishing in uh conditions where there's low light low light conditions overcast early morning evening time i tend to like darker patterns you know like black purple and black black and blue um and when there's some sun on the water you know i tend to go with more natural patterns like i have this orange and yellow uh, stimulator type theme color pattern that i fish um so it varies and then in the past couple of years i've been experimenting with that bomber variation that i i've been tying as well um, a lot of times you know i choose yeah fly color more based on visibility than anything else like for instance uh, a surface okay. fly with you know that's dark um, on the top as well as the bottom is going to show up when you have kind of like gray silvery glare on the water which is typical during overcast 
and morning and evening time. Um, you know, black is going to show up really well. But that bomber, you know, that I tie with a black wing that fans up, um, you know, you can see it from pretty far away when you got glare on the water. And then, and then of course, when you got some sun on the water, sure, you know, like a white or bleached wing is going to just pop. So it really, it's you're not thinking of color as a trigger for the fish. Yeah. It's more yeah. I mean, the visibility, so you can over see the, the years, you know, with 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 the wang, I've kind of gone through phases of thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, I got this color combination, and and you know, this is the bomb, and um, you know, of course, eventually I'll catch fish on on it, you know, so. Eventually, any color combination will work if you if you just keep it on your lines. <laughs> Anything you've noticed in the winter when you've taken fish on the surface, was there any changes? You know, like maybe the water temperature rose for the uh, like a couple days. Anything like um, that? I, I'm tending to think that when I've risen steelhead to the surface in the wintertime, conditions have been relatively stable and mild. Okay. You know, like that last one I got, the river had was on the drop. It it had dropped from heavy rains the week prior, um, and and conditions were relatively mild. Uh, water temperature was forty four degrees, um, but I think you know I have a sense that it was you know the water temperatures were pretty stable. So if if you were gonna fish like say thirty six degree water, thirty eight degree water, are you gonna Experiment with a dry fly. Um, are you going? I'm crazy fly? enough that I'll still experiment with a dry fly. Um, you know, and I'd concentrate on the softest water I can find. Yeah, when you when you when you have cold mm -hmm. water, um, I tend to concentrate on soft water. So, so soft cushions towards the inside, um, places like that. Last last Saturday, I'm not going to call it a surface steelhead because the fly wasn't totally on the surface. It was in the film or just underneath. I had like 38 degree water um, that had risen wow, from okay. 35 first thing in the morning. And uh, but what I'm starting to think is it's more the location. So shallower water, perhaps, where maybe I mean, if the fish is, is lying in two feet of water, maybe you don't necessarily need to get deep and it's not a big stretch for it to rise up, you know, right. the column. Yeah, that, that would make sense. You still with fly fishing collaborative, anything you want? Um, yeah, I've been, I've been tying some flies on? for fly fishing collaborative. I'm, I'm due to, to send them some more. So I'll be tying up some more flies, um, to, to send out to them. Um, and they're a wonderful organization. Of course, they, they do some wonderful work in, uh, you know, helping protect, um, keep, you know, keeping kids out of sex, sex trafficking. If, if anyone wants to buy some, um, they can, what's the best way to contact you? Catch me, message me through spay pages, or, um, you can email me. Uh, my, my email is my first and last name together. So T O D D H I R A N O at yahoo.com. All right. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for setting aside. Uh, time aside to chat with me about this uh it's, it's greatly appreciated because like i said you're one of the few resources that i could find online uh in regards to this and it's even more awesome that you've had correspondence with bill and you know you kind of were there with him yeah for sure you know, working it's, on this it's been a great together. privilege you know to have direct ac access to your mentor
um, you know, as opposed to some, you know, just being somebody you admire from a distance. Yeah. I mean, be able to develop a friendship with. And, and Bill is just an amazing man. He's just a very humble, um, just a great guy.